Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. Well, good morning. Man, what a privilege that I have to get to share uh, the gospel this morning with you, but specifically that I get to share out of my favorite book in the Bible, Philippians. Uh, this morning, we're going to begin reading in just a moment out of Philippians 1.12. But let me ask you a question this morning. What do you center your life around? I mean, what do you think of when you get up in the morning? The very first thing you think of, what dominates your thought? What dominates your conversations? What, what is it that when you have to schedule events that you have to schedule around? Because you see, whatever the answer to that question is, or those questions is, that's what you center your life around. I mean, for a lot of men, it's, it's our jobs. We get up in the morning, we start thinking about our jobs. We, we think about those tasks that we have to do. We think about all those goals that we got to reach this week, even on the weekends when we're with our kids. As much as we love our kids, in the back of our minds, we're thinking about what have I got to do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and as schedules running through our minds. We schedule all of our activities around our work. Well, maybe you're a mother. And I can guarantee you mothers, most of them schedule their lives around their kids. They get up in the morning thinking, what are they going to have for breakfast? What are they going to wear for school? What, what about lunch? What do we have for lunch today? And if you were to ask a mom, would you like to go to lunch today? She's going to check her kids' schedules before she even checks her own schedule. Listen, yeah, moms have to schedule their lives around their kids so often. Maybe you're a student. And you, you scheduled your life around school, your schoolwork. You've got to get your homework done. You, you've got a test that you're working on. But even beyond that, you've got extracurricular activities, and your life revolves around school because that's, that's the center of your life. Can I just tell you, all those things are good. They're excellent things, and you should be thinking about those and focusing them on them. But can I just tell you, they're temporal. They won't, they won't last past this life. In fact, Many of those things won't even last to the end of this life. Men, you guys know that jobs come and go. In fact, during this COVID era, it's hard to even count on a job. You're not even sure what's going to be happening next. Mom, I I hate to break it to you, but, but one day those sweet little children, they're going to grow up and you're going to have an empty nest. And then what will you center your life around? Students, hopefully one day you're going to graduate and you're going to move into a new realm and a new world. And then what do you focus your life on? Now, again, I said all those are good things. But could I just tell you, there's something that you can focus your life on that will affect everything else in your life, not only in this life, but the next. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you this morning how it can be the benchmark of your life. I've had three different jobs here at Fielder Church in my 23 years of being here. I started as a worship pastor, not anywhere close to Reggie. And when you had to jump around like he does, I had to give it up because it's just too much for an old man like me. But I became the executive pastor. I love that job. And executive pastors deal mainly with operations, facilities, HR, IT, things like that. And my very first job was to build the building called the Metro Center. It's actually the building we're worshiping in today, a beautiful building. And praise God, I didn't have to do it alone. I had some wonderful people to come around and to help me. We had just begun. We had put up the construction fence, 
And uh, the architect said, hey, Mike, let's go to the site. So I went with the architect and with an engineer and with the head of the building company that was going to help us, the construction company. And we walked out, we went through the fence, and you know what was sitting right in the middle of that construction project or where we were going to start? It was a cross. Now, I've got a picture of it because we actually kept it. I want to show it to you. You'll see it coming up on your screen here now. This is the cross. It was sitting right almost in the middle of the construction site. And I said to them, how cool is this? You guys have put a cross so that every workman has to walk by the cross knowing he's working on the church. That's a really good idea. I said to the architect, he said, well, Mike, thank you, but that's not what we did. He said, actually, what it is, is we normally have a plate that we put in cement in the middle of the ground. It's called a benchmark. And every piece of steel in this place Every foundation, everything that we have in this building finds its location from this mark. We triangulate everything from here. Now, is that not cool? That this place where we worship, this metro center has at its central measurement, the benchmark of this church is the cross. This is a gospel-focused, cross-centered church. And so we had to keep the cross. And so we moved it over by our annex that's down the road just a little bit from us. And we've kept it. And that's the picture that you saw. Well, this morning, I believe that the Apostle Paul in Philippians wants to give us some principles how we can live a gospel-centered life, how the gospel can be the benchmark of our life. Now, last week, as you're, getting, as you're turning to Philippians 1, 12 through 18, I want you to remember what we covered last week. Uh, in the first chapter of, of Philippians, we started this book. We found out that uh, Paul was a servant or a slave, we discovered, of Jesus Christ. And he said that he wrote to all this church, all the saints in Philippi. This was his favorite church, as a matter of fact. This was a church that he loved more than any other church, I'm certain, because of the way he addressed them and the way he loved them. And now he's going to go on and teach us some more things. He wants to help them be a gospel-centered church. So if you'll turn in your copy of Scripture, I want you to read along with me. He writes this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment for Christ is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here in the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in this present life or, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. I, it, you can read just this text, but you just read throughout any of the letters of Paul and you're going to find out everything he focused on was the gospel. He was a man centered on the gospel. He couldn't even write one letter without talking over and over and over about the gospel. And here you see how he rejoices whenever the gospel is proclaimed. But I want you to know, Paul wasn't always that way. In fact, he wasn't always named Paul. His name was actually Saul of Tarsus. But his life was so, so radically changed that he not only changed his name, but he changed the focus of his life. 
And just like last week, we went back and saw the beginning of the church at Philippi, and it gave us some good context. I want us to go back to the book of Acts again, if we could, and I want us to look at how the center focus of Paul, who was called Saul's life, was changed. So if you would, turn back with me to Acts 8. Acts 8, 1 through 3. And let's see how Paul centered his life on something else, but now is centered on the, excuse me, on the gospel. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Now, who he's talking about there is Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr, and he was just, had just been stoned, and Saul was there. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Listen, this man named Saul, who would later become Paul, the writer of most of the New Testament, or a lot of the New Testament, he had a focus that was anything but the gospel. In fact, it was diametrically opposed to the gospel. You see, Saul was a devout Jew. And he saw this new movement the way the followers of Jesus Christ is a threat to everything he believed. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was an up-and-coming new young man in the Jewish faith, and he saw this as a threat not only to his belief but to his future, and so he wanted to take out all the Christians. But something changed in his life. We're going to read about it. Go over to uh, uh, Acts 9, and let's begin at the first of Acts 9 and see what happened to Saul. But Saul, verse 1, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that, he found, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. All of a sudden, a bright light on the road to Damascus comes, and it blinds Saul. And he is encountered, he has an encounter with Jesus Christ, audibly speaking to him, challenging the center of his life. Now, if you continue to read on the story, he heads toward Damascus, and there's a man there named Ananias. And God speaks to Ananias, or Jesus speaks to Ananias, and he says to him, I want you to go talk to this guy, Saul. Well, Ananias says, are you kidding me? Hey, I've heard his reputation. I know what he does to believers. Lord, I, I don't want to do that. And then we pick up Jesus talking to Ananias in verse 15. So go down to verse 15 of chapter 9. But the Lord said to him, said to Ananias, but the Lord said to him, go, for he, meaning Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. 
And he regained his sight, and then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened, and for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Listen, I, I don't know if you caught everything in this verse, but listen to verse 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, I've chosen, I have chosen Saul to be my instrument. And he also said, and he's going to suffer a lot. Saul was discovering through Ananias that something different was going to happen in his life. No longer was he going to persecute Jews. Now he was actually going to share the gospel and he himself would end up being a sufferer because of that calling. And his life, because he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, was changed forever. Let's look at how his center of his life changed. Verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this man the man who wreaked havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. I believe that we see in, in this text uh, this morning, we see in Paul's life, we see in Saul who became Paul, a man who became gospel focused. Now in our text this morning, I believe Saul's going to, Paul, who, who was Saul, is going to share with us three principles how you and I can become gospel focused Christians, gospel focused disciples. The first principle that I think we see in Paul's life is this. Gospel-centered Christians never forget the greatness of their salvation. Gospel-centered Christians never forget the greatness of their salvation. We see here that Paul, in, in our Philippian text, that, that Paul is now in Rome. He's shackled to a, uh, a Roman guard, and yet he's happy. He is joyous. I believe it's because he never forgot about what that incredible thing that happened to him on the road to Damascus. He had this miraculous change in his life. And you and I need to never forget what God miraculously did in your life and in mine. Now, I know you're, you're like me. I grew up in the church. I was a pastor's kid. I was in church every day. The door was open every time it was open. And I know that there was just a time when I just, just knew, you know what, I, I'm a sinner and I just walked down the aisle and I gave my life to Christ. Maybe you were saved at VBS or maybe at a youth camp or maybe it was at a Billy Graham crusade. You know, you're saying, but Mike, I, I didn't have, I can't be gospel focused. I didn't have an amazing, miraculous change in life like Paul did. Well, can I just maybe challenge that thought for just a minute? Listen, I want you to know your salvation is miraculous. You were dead in your trespasses and God made you alive. So often people will use the, the illustration and say, yes, I was, I was flailing away in the ocean of sin and Jesus came in a lifeboat and he reached down and he picked me up. Can I just tell you, it was worse than that. No, you had already drowned. You were laying on the bottom of the ocean floor and Jesus came down and he picked you up and he put his lips on yours and he breathed into you new life. There was nothing. You weren't flailing around. You were already dead in your trespasses and Jesus Christ gave you new life. That's a miracle. 
That's a life-changing transformation in your life. And I want you to know that Jesus said in Luke 15, when that happened in your life, the angels rejoiced. You can read about it in Luke 15. In fact, there was this neat thing. As I was reading through this, I thought about that. The angels rejoiced. How often do they do that? Well, now I could probably be wrong on this, but I only came up with five times. I look over in the book of Job, the oldest book in the Bible, and it says in the book of Job that the angels rejoiced when God created the heavens and the earth. When he said, let there be light, the angels rejoiced. I kept looking through the scriptures. I came across, of course, the book of Luke. And you and I both are very familiar when the angels rejoiced at the birth of Jesus, when incarnate God stepped out of heaven and he came and he was born so that he could redeem this fall, fallen earth. He, he, he came so that he could fix the creation that he had made And yet, what happened? The angels rejoiced. And of course, I told you about Luke 15, how the angels rejoiced when you and I came to faith in Christ. There are two other times I found there over in the book of Revelation, whenever the church is raptured into heaven, the angels are going to rejoice. And then finally, when Jesus comes again for the last time and he eradicates sin, he defeats Satan, he brings the new heaven and the new earth to full fruition and eternity is in front of us, the angels will rejoice. Listen, the angels say your salvation is miraculous, and you should too. And don't you ever forget what Christ did in your life. But there's also something else you should never forget. Part of your salvation, not only was it a miraculous salvation, but he saved you for a purpose. We saw that in in Paul's life back over in Acts. He saved him. He told Ananias, you tell him, I have got a mission for him, and I want him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But can I just tell you that you and I have the same calling on our life as well. I know that over in uh, the first book of Acts, the very first chapter of Acts, Jesus, before he ascended up into heaven, gave a final word to all of his disciples, and he also gave it to you and I, and it says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the world, the ends of the world. Listen, you were saved for a purpose, not just to spend eternity in heaven, absolutely. You were saved to live a gospel-centered life and make a difference in the world. Now I know, I've sat in on a lot of messages where people used Acts 1-8 or they used the Great Commission and I felt guilty because I don't evangelize enough or I don't tell enough people about Jesus. And Oh, I didn't surrender to be a full-time missionary in some far-off country, but could I just help you with that as well? Listen, you're no less called than Paul, and you have the same power and the same opportunity to the Holy Spirit as Paul did. We just have to live gospel-centered lives. Now, you'd be saying, well, Mike, I know, but I you just don't know my life. My life is so full. I'm, I work every day. 50 hours a week I put in. I, I have no margin in my life. How can I go up and down my street with gospel tracks or whatever it is you want me to do? Could I just say again to you, you don't need to feel guilty. You just need to live a gospel-centered life in the life God has given you. If he's called you to be a father, be a gospel-centered father. He's called you to be a mother, be a gospel-centered mother. If he's called you to be a student, be a gospel-centered student. If he's called you and allowed you to be a coach of a little league team, be a gospel-centered little league coach. Whatever you do, be a gospel-centered coach, be a gospel-centered person, be a gospel-centered man or woman who can make a difference just like Paul did. 
You see, gospel-centered people never forget about the greatness of their salvation, and it drives them in everything they do. I think there's another principle this morning, though, that we need to look at. It's this. Gospel-centered Christians see every circumstance as a unique opportunity to live out the gospel. Let me say that again. Gospel-centered Christians see every circumstance as a unique opportunity to live out the gospel. I see that in verses 12 through 14 of our text. So when they had come together, it says, you see, excuse me, when you see it over in our text this morning, verse 12, Paul, if you remember, is in Rome when he's writing this, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now he's in prison. What's happened to me, I'm in prison, has advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, if you know much about Paul, you know that it was his dream and his vision to always go to Rome. He wanted to go there, and no doubt when he thought about going to Rome, he had envisioned standing on the steps of the synagogue and proclaiming the gospel there and seeing hundreds of people come to to faith in Christ. Or perhaps he wanted to sit with all the great philosophers of the day and sit and debate the the nuances of the gospel. He was such a brilliant orator and a brilliant debater. But that's not what happened. (laughs) Paul's in prison. He's under house arrest. He was arrested in Jerusalem and drugged to Rome. And here he is. He's got an audience of one. But Paul saw that as an opportunity. It says he was, he was rejoicing that the gospel had been advanced, and yet it wasn't his plan. No, God had a different plan. One man, one at a time. I don't know if it was eight-hour shifts, but I can bet you, Paul, I bet you, Paul, he told that story of his conversion over and over and over again. And no doubt, in the, the guard barracks, they sat and said, oh, man, I've got Paul duty today. I'm going to have to hear that story about the Damascus Road one more time. Because I know Paul was relentless because he was a gospel-focused man. And you and I should do the same. We should look at every circumstance in our lives as an opportunity to live out the gospel. Again, if you're a parent, if you're a mom or a dad, whenever you discipline your children, you ought to just stop and say, I can be gospel focused in this. I, I could look at my child and say, hey, I know you messed up. Let me tell you why. You have a fallen nature. You were born with a fallen nature. And you, whatever age they are, you can begin to explain to them their fallen nature, begin to lay the groundwork of saying the only thing that can fix your fallen nature is, of course, Jesus Christ. Of course, you have to discipline. Of course, you have to teach them differently. But you can begin to sow the seeds of the gospel while you're raising your children. You can be a gospel-centered parent at work. At work. Instead of just sitting in your cubicle doing your work, why don't you see your work as an opportunity to share the gospel? Get out of your comfort zone. Get out of your cubicle. Go meet the people and say, this is my mission field. God, I don't know how you're going to use me, but I'm just open to be used. I want to be a gospel-centered person. I think there's one other principle that I I want us to see this morning, and it's that the gospel-centered Christian understands that the gospel has the power even when we're inadequate. I know that over in Philippians 15 through 18, I want you to see an unusual thing that was going on in the church. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. 
the farmer proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict, to afflict me in my imprisonment, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Apparently, there were some brothers in the church. They were sharing the gospel. I, lo I looked at some other commentaries, and some theologians believe that there were people in the church who, who were envious of Paul, his position, his incredible mind, his, his power to speak to others. And, and they wanted to rise up in power and they wanted to rise up in leadership. And now they thought, well, hey, Paul's out of the way. I can step in. I can take over. I can be the leader of this church. And you'd expect Paul to just jump all over them. But he doesn't because apparently they're preaching the gospel and nothing more than the gospel. We know that Paul's adamant about the right gospel being preached because we see what he does to the Judaizers. He, in fact, in verse chapter 3, we're going to find out he calls them dogs and evildoers, those who added to the gospel. But these men are apparently preaching the gospel correctly, but they're doing it out of selfish, mo excuse me, out of selfish motive. I kind of relate sometimes. Listen, I... I want you to know, just coming up here today, I, I was intimidated. Every week, Jason Perez, who's, by the way, one of my favorite preachers, maybe he is my favorite, since he's my boss, he's my favorite preacher of all time. I want you to know that. But also, I want you to know, I was intimidated because I don't want to mess up up here. I don't, I don't want to be bad. Where does that come from? It comes from pride. That's wrong intent. But the truth of the matter is, no matter how good Jason is, no matter how good or bad I am, we don't have power. We're inadequate. The gospel is what has power. And in your life, when you think, oh, I can't talk like Paul, I, I can't be like Jason or Jim Parks and how they can share their faith or anybody else you would lift up, can I just remind you, it never was about you. It's all about the gospel. All you have to do is center your life on the gospel and be willing to share the good news of the gospel. And whether it's from inadequacy or wrong motive, like I do sometimes, the end of the day is the gospel's powerful. Just share it. But I want you to know if you live a gospel-centered life, you won't ever forget about your salvation. And it'll be that driving force in your life. You'll never forget about your calling. And it'll be the driving force in your life. You won't forget and you'll make every circumstance an opportunity to live out the gospel and you'll recognize that it's not about you. It's about the power of the gospel. And when you do that, could I just share how God can do miraculous things? Let's look back, if you would, to verse 14. Look what God did when, when Paul was gospel-centered. Verse 14. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, you need to know that he was under what they call house arrest. And under house arrest, there were allowed from time to time people to come. Epaphrodites, other people came to see him during this two-year stint while he was in Rome. Now, I imagine, like me, I visited the prisons before, and I, you go out there and you think, I, I've got to encourage this guy. I've got to say a good word to this guy. And they went expecting to lift up Paul, but I think what happened, they saw Paul as it was here, all rejoicing in what God's doing, and they were lifted up. Maybe they were a little bit afraid. You know, if I share my faith, I could end up like Paul, but Paul encouraged them. He encouraged their, their courage and said, you need to be courageous, and they went out and they were more bold than they ever were. And I want you to know, when you live a God-centered life, you're going to get attention. 
People are going to watch. Unbelievers are going to go say, how, when he is in such bad circumstances, all that he's going through, how could he be so joyful? Non-believers will take notice and you'll earn the right to share the gospel. You say, well, it's not me. It's the gospel in my life. And you'll share that. Even believers who maybe have been timid, when they see you live a God-centered life, a gospel-centered life at your work, at at home, they're going to be encouraged and they'll become more bold. But there's a really cool thing that I learned and I discovered when I was studying this book. Do you remember us reading earlier in verse 12 where he says this, verse 12 and 13, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance, advance the gospel so that it became known throughout the whole imperial guard. Now, the imperial guard was an elite force. It's actually, historians call it the Praetorian Guard. And if you know anything about Rome, you know this, they had senators and there was a Caesar, the most powerful man in the world and generals and the Praetorian Guard were the personal bodyguards of not only the generals and not only the senators, but also of Caesar and his whole household. Now here is Paul. He is shackled to one of the Praetorian Guard and day after day, he shares the good news of the gospel with them and no doubt many of them had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so I wanna show you as Paul Harvey once said, and here's the rest of the story. I want you to turn to the last few verses of Philippians. Philippians 4, 21 and listen to this. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All of the saints greet you, and get this, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, your spirit. Paul thought he'd have to go, he would want to go and preach from the great um, synagogue, to, to go and stand on the steps. He wanted to perhaps go to Rome and talk with the philosophers of his day. I doubt he would have ever had access to Caesar's household. But because God and his plan, his miraculous plan, put the Praetorian guard right there one at a time, it affected even the household and people in Caesar's household came to faith in Jesus Christ. My, my. And when you and I decide to let the gospel be the center of our lives, we never forget about how God miraculously changed us and we are intent on what he has called us to do. And in matter where he places us, we live a gospel-centered life. That same miraculous results can happen in our lives just like it happened in Paul's life. Now, I know for some of you today, you're going, but I don't even know about this gospel and maybe you're watching us today online and, and you don't even know what we're talking about in the gospel. Let me make it real clear with you if I could. The gospel is simply this. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and I, all of us have a problem and it's called sin. And it's a deadly problem. Because in the book of Romans, it says the wages of sin, one sin is death. You see, you and I know we've already messed up. We have no way to stand before a holy and just and righteous God. He is perfect and he demands perfection. Even though he loves us, he demands perfection. That is the ticket to eternal life. And you and I have already messed up and we have no power to fix it ourselves. But here's the great news. That verse says, but the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus Christ did for you what you can't do for yourself. The perfect son of God took your sins and my sins on his shoulder 
And he took the punishment that you and I should have taken. And because of that, one day when we go to heaven and we stand at the white throne judgment, he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Our answer can be, I did nothing other than accept your son, Jesus, as my Lord and my Savior. And he'll say, welcome home. Now, I know many of people uh, have never taken that step who are watching this. And I want to encourage you. In just a moment, Reggie's going to come and we're going to sing a song. And I invite you, during that time, take your phone out and text the word next step to 94253. Or you can go to our website, our website fielder.org backslash next step. Very short form that you have to fill out so that we'll know who you are. And then one of our pastors will call you. We'll talk to you about how you can have a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. But I know many, many people who are watching us today, you're followers of Christ. But if you're going to be honest with yourself this morning, you know, and I know I do this. I sometimes center my life around the wrong thing. And today, as we sing this song, as many of you are going to go and get the elements for the Lord's Supper, because Jason Paredes, our lead pastor, is going to come and lead us in the Lord's Supper. I, I want you to know you should take this opportunity. I encourage you, take an inventory of your life. What do you get up for in the morning? What is it that's driving your life? Why not let the gospel be the benchmark of your life? And I promise you, if you will, you'll be a better dad. You'll be a better father. You'll be a better student. You'll be a better employee. And God will use you in miraculous ways if you'll center your life on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I said earlier that gospel-centered Christians never forget the miraculous salvation experience they had. And it's all because of Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. I know of no better way than to remember the miraculous event that took place in my life than yours, than reflecting back on what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. So prepare your hearts. You that don't know Christ, I invite you, get your phone, text next steps to 94253. But take an inventory of your life right now. See who's sitting on the throne of your life and take this opportunity to say, oh Lord, you sit on the throne. Help me have a gospel-centered life that I could be used to make a difference in somebody else's life. As Reggie comes now, you prepare your hearts to take the Lord's Supper or to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior.